If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter 5. That's where we'll be studying in just a minute. As we get into that, I, I want to just mention something that's kind of crossed my mind. When I, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there seems to be this ever-growing and I would say disturbing trend in our society that a lot of Americans are heavily medicated. Now, your mind goes to different places with that, but let me tell you what I mean. Okay, so I lived in Albania for 14 years, came back to the United States permanently in 2006. And of the different things that were a part of my culture shock coming back to America, one of the things is is that all of a sudden I noticed that the TV commercials were just full of pharmaceutical ads that didn't used to be there 14 years prior. And it is amazing, really. I I don't have any idea what the stats are. But more and more people are on some form of anxiety or depression medication. And I understand that there are some people who truly need that to be able to cope. I'm not trying to belittle that in any way. But I, I do think that probably some people don't need it. And they just use that as their way out of dealing with some of the truths of life that sometimes are are difficult. I I sometimes sit and wonder in fear that if, if I really knew how many of my friends were taking some form of anxiety medication, I have, and I would have no idea. I I might be shocked. I don't know. Well, this is not a judgmental issue. I'm, I'm setting that up to just point to the fact that today I've got some good news for you. Okay. And God has in Romans chapter five, some really good news for us. And to help us, I think, balance out some of the things that stress us out in normal daily life. I, I hope that by the time this day's over, you'll be able to truly say, man, I'm, I'm glad I came to First Baptist Church today. I'm glad I heard what God had for me today. And, and in kind of getting into Romans chapter 5, let me just quote for you Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 4 where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always." And again I say, Rejoice. And, and I say that because that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about experiencing the joy of your salvation. And to be able to rejoice is the opposite of being depressed, right? And, and so that's what I kind of want to see. It is possible to experience the joy of your salvation every single day. And we're going to see how in these first 10 verses of Romans chapter 5. Now, if you've been with us in the study through Romans, Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 have been heavily informational. Okay, Romans 1, 2, and 3, most significantly emphasizing just how sinful mankind is and how we desperately need a Savior. And then at the end of chapter 3 and all through chapter 4, we have seen how the Lord has provided justification that we can be just as if we have never sinned. He provides this justification when we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these first four chapters really just set up all of the information you need to understand biblical salvation. But when we cross into Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 begins what I would call, you you are crossing a one-way bridge. Now we go from just understanding the information about salvation to beginning to actually experiencing it. Romans 5 verse number 1 literally deals with your personal entrance, your personal experience in your salvation, your eternal life, and all the benefits that come with that. And so just follow along with me. Let's read the first 10 verses together, and then we'll get into the message. Romans 5, 
starting in verse number one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's some good news in these verses, y'all. Let's go to the Lord and pray, and we'll jump into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, I, I do pray that indeed you would just help us to see and be reminded of the joys that are available in this eternal life, in this eternal salvation that you have purchased with your blood. Thank you for all the brothers and sisters in Christ who know that they know you personally and, and can be reminded today, regardless of what tribulations of life might be going on around us, that we can just rejoice in the fact that you have done what you have done and all the wonderful benefits and promises that come together with that. And if there be people here today, Lord, that for whatever reason are just not 100% sure that, God forbid, their physical life were to end today, that they would have eternal life as their promise, as their gift, as their own personal possession. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the day that they would understand that and surrender their lives to you. So teach us now, Lord. Come, let the Holy Spirit be our teacher. Speak through your word and through my mouth as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the first thing that we can rejoice in is our standing. You can rejoice in your standing, and that's what we're going to see in the first couple of verses. It says in verse number two, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice, okay? So your standing, by definition, is your permanent position. It's being what the Bible calls in Christ. That's your standing. That's who you are. That's where you stand before God. I, I, I want to share with you Psalms chapter 1, the first five verses. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And that's an awesome statement of how a man can be blessed by living and walking with God day by day. And then there's a contrast coming in. It says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, notice, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Because when that day of judgment comes, the standing of the ungodly is that they will stand no longer in front of God. But our standing is in Christ. And we're going to see how that plays out as we continue. So now that we have crossed this bridge, it says, therefore being justified by faith, now that we are saved, okay, it says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. 
That's your standing. Your standing before Almighty God, if you have received him by faith and you have placed your faith and trust in him for your salvation, is that you're at peace. You're at peace. It says in verse number 10, for if when we were enemies, and we were, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So our standing before God, before we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, was that we were his enemies. Our standing before him is that we were sinners. We were guilty, and we saw that in great detail in the first three chapters. And what God did is he reconciled us. Now, reconciliation is a long word, but very simply just means you take two warring parties, you take two parties that are at odds, and you bring them back together again. When we do marriage counseling, maybe there's a rift in a marriage, and the two people are frustrated and arguing and fighting with each other, and they need reconciliation. They need to be brought back together again with one mind and one heart. Okay, we as sinners, we as enemies before God because of our sin— were at odds with a holy and righteous God. But Jesus Christ, by what he did, he reconciled us back together to have a relationship characterized by peace. We now, because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace is the opposite of worry. Peace is the opposite of worry. You can't worry if you have peace. And you can't have peace at the moment that you're worrying. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says this, be careful for nothing. Okay? So you might consider that word, be careful, be full of care. Okay? In other words, don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing, but, here's the contrast, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what's going to happen? And the peace of God which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So if you are not full of care, the peace of God will flood your heart and your soul because peace is the opposite of worry. Peace is also the opposite of fear. If you are fearful, you're typically worried about stuff. If you are fearful, you don't have peace. You are nervous. You are upset. But peace is the opposite of fear. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse number 1, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be fearful. Why is your heart stirred up and troubled? You believe in God, believe also in me, he says. And if you went further down in that chapter, all the way to verse number 27 of John 14, he says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And again, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so this idea of fear consuming our hearts and our souls, and we've all been there. We've all had tough times where we worry and we fret and we're afraid of what might happen. At those moments, wouldn't you agree, there's no peace in our hearts. But our standing before a holy, eternal, almighty God, the creator of the universe, the one who will judge all in righteousness and purity, we're reconciled. We're at peace. I mean, he has done this for us that we can rejoice in the fact that not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has already done, that we have peace with God. Typically, the greatest fear is the fear of death. And maybe you have heard people refer to at a time 
uh, when somebody's physical life was failing, they, they might ask a question like, have you made your peace with God? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you made your peace with God? Well, it's interesting because we can make our peace with God when it says being justified by faith. That's how we get our peace with God. That's the only way you possibly can do that. Because you're standing before God when you receive him as your Lord and your Savior. He sees you as perfect and holy. Now, when I was a young Christian and somebody shared with me how my standing before God, God looks at me and sees me today as perfect and holy, I just got to tell you, that blew me away. I was like, does God need glasses? I don't understand how that's possible. But the fact is, when he looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus Christ. If you were with us last week, we shared briefly the, the whole idea of justification and imputation and how God's righteousness is put on us. And we talked about an illustration of two books. And one book would be, uh, on the title, it would say, The Life and Times of Jeff Bartell. And in that book would be just a list of all kind of sinful, awful, nasty, selfish, carnal things that I would have done throughout my life. And then there's another book. And the other book would be The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. And that book would just be a list of everything that is good and holy and right and pure and noble and, and excellent. And literally what God does at that moment of justification and imputation of his righteousness, it's as though you can imagine it this way, that he takes the cover off my book and the cover off the life of Jesus Christ and switches the covers. And so now when God judges Jesus Christ on Calvary, it's because of all the sin that really I committed and you committed. But when he looks at the book that has my name on it now, it's just all that righteous, holy, perfect, just, noble, pure life inside because... That's what he's done for us. He has made us just as if we have never sinned. And we have peace with God. That's our standing. We are as though we're perfect and holy before him. And the verse I referenced last week is good to be reminded of, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He switched the covers on the books. So it says, as it says in verse number nine, your life is now covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It says in verse nine, much more than being now justified by his blood. So on one hand, we have justified by faith. And on the other hand, we have justified by his blood. You might want to look at it this way. It's our faith in his atonement when he shed his blood on Calvary's cross that causes this whole thing to take place. The thing that we do is just believe. The thing that he did was shed his blood to pay the ultimate sacrifice so that we indeed could have this opportunity. Some of you who have spent time studying the Bible would be familiar with the story of the Passover when God instituted the Passover uh, with Israel back in Exodus chapter 12 and it was at the very end of those plagues in Egypt and all of that before they crossed the Red Sea. And ultimately they killed the lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost and on the two side posts and it says then when God would come through the land that he would notice and when he would see the blood on the door that he will pass over you and not take the firstborn. Not kill the firstborn, okay? And literally, that's the idea. When I see the blood, I will pass over you when I come to judge. And when God looks at you, friends, who have received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, when he sees the blood, 
he will pass over you in judgment because you're at peace with him. You're at peace with him. That's your standing. That's who you are. Verse number two says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Grace is literally just a gift wherein we stand. And as a result, this causes us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This world system seeks peace. It is my personal opinion that the thing that human beings worldwide want more than any other character quality, more than any other thing in the world, is peace and security. That's what people want. And they seek it typically by means of material wealth. And the idea is the more money you have and the more bank accounts and insurance and retirement funds and reserves upon your reserves you have, you buffer your life for any potential mishap such that you can preserve your ability to have a level of peace. And that's fine. But true peace with God only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether or not you happen to have the ability to have all those bank accounts you absolutely can get in on the peace anyway because it comes through Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That's what he's got for us. So we can rejoice in our standing. We rejoice in who he has made us because of what he has done, and we just believed it. But let's go on to the next few verses because we can also rejoice in our state. Rejoice in our standing, but rejoice in our state. So with the context of rejoicing, it says, and not only so, but we glory or rejoice in tribulations also, and then goes on. So where your standing was your permanent position, your state is your temporary position. That's your daily life. That's the life that I see when I see myself not perfect, not righteous, not holy, not doing everything right. I see myself that way because that's the way my daily life is. God happens to see me through a different lens. He sees me through the blood of Jesus Christ. My state is my temporary position. It has to do with the circumstantial changes that take place as we live our lives. That's borne out in Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says this to the Philippian church. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state, there it is, whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. And here's some states that he's been in. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And so our state, the state of our life, is how's it going today? Okay, the standing is how we stand before God. The state is how, do we, how, we, how are we doing today? And it's interesting because daily life ain't always so great, Right? It's not always so great. And so God begins the list with tribulation. <laughs> he knows. He understands fully. Look, we, we, you know, we come up with these little ways of saying it. Life comes at you fast. Life is messy. Life's not fair. They're all true. And so God begins the list with tribulation. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, I was reminded it says, For he, God, maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, 
Life happens to all of us. It doesn't matter if you've professed Jesus Christ as your Savior. The circumstances of daily life happen to all of us. But the thing that we need to keep in mind is only a true Christian can rejoice in their daily circumstances, which oftentimes can be hard because only a true Christian has peace with God. Only a true Christian understands the big picture. Only a true Christian sees the end game and therefore can actually rejoice in the circumstances which aren't always great. Romans 8.28, a lot of people's favorite verse in the Bible, a great promise of God that frequently we quote. Romans 8.28 is one of those things we hang on too tight. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And we say, amen, that's awesome. But if you stop and think about it a little bit, you're like, wait a minute, I don't think that life is wonderful all the time. Yeah, well, that's not what it said. It said that all things are not good. It says all things work together for good. And if you're not sure exactly how that plays out, it's because you didn't read verse 29. And verse 29 gives you the understanding of verse 28. It says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so the whole idea that all things in the life of a truly born-again Christian work together for good is true, and we can rejoice in that. Why? Even if they're difficult, because God is using them to ultimately mold us and make us more and more every day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in that. Things are not always good, but they can work together for good. So we can rejoice in tribulations. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but you can do it if you have that picture. It goes on, it says, tribulation worketh patience. Patience is the next thing. In fact, a little further in Romans, if you happen to flip a couple of pages to chapter 12, it says, patient in tribulation. Because it's the tribulations of life that set the circumstances such that we have to endure the hardships to develop the character quality of patience, right? Patience is developed through suffering. That's how it comes. If you happen to know any patient people, it's because they've suffered. If you value patience in the life of somebody you know or yourself, they probably got it because they've been through some tough times and they've learned the lessons as a result, okay? So a man becomes patient by putting up with stuff that's not going good until he's just worn out, right? Uh, we get impatient because we want to get the quick and easy solution, right? I mean, that's why we get impatient. We're in the hurry-up society. Everything's got to be quicker, faster, right? But here's the problem. God's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. You ever notice that? We're in a hurry. God's timeline is entirely different. His perspective on time is entirely different. A day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. And God's got this perspective on time. And let me just tell you, the quicker that you can learn that, the more it will help you to learn how to slow down. Patience is a great character quality. And if there are people that you respect, if there's people that you know, and you think, wow, that guy is really patient. Just stop for a second and recognize the fact, you know what, they've probably suffered. They've probably learned that because of the difficulties they've had in their life. 
And they're not just quick to judge or fly off the handle at stuff. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36, just a portion of that verse, it says, God tells us that we have need of patience. Amen? We do. Uh, if you've been around a lot of impatient people, you understand, yeah, indeed, we, we have need of patience. James chapter 1, similar to Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That's what we've just been talking about. Knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Of course. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking, in other words, nothing. So this represents a process of growth. The difficulties come into our lives. Why, Lord, I thought you loved me. Why is it so hard? Yes, I love you. That's why it's hard. So that you can learn what you need to learn so that you can be more like me. And you're not going to learn it if everything's just rosy. We have to learn to trust him through the difficulties. It's a process of growth of the Christian life. When you walk through it and learn, you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ better. You come to know him more intimately. You come to know him more personally. I don't know if that interests you, but if it does, it will help you to keep a perspective such that when the difficulties come, you can actually rejoice. You don't have to love them, but you can rejoice in the fact that they work together for good. So tribulation works patience, and patience experience. Let's talk about experience for a second. Experience, it's not just having done something before, but real experience is having gone through the mistakes as well as the successes. If I'm going to get my car worked on, I want it worked on by an experienced mechanic. Amen? Somebody who has made mistakes and knows what not to do besides what to do, right? In ministry, serving the Lord, taking his word, sharing it with others, people suffer. There are difficulties. And if they continue, they learn to trust God and wait on God to work, wait on God to do what only God can do, and then God does work. And when God does work, then we learn experience, it gives us hope, which is the next thing. It gives us that hope and understanding for future ministry because, okay, things were going bad. It was tough. I'm involved in the ministry, but I'm going to wait on God. God, you've got to pull me out of this thing. God, you've got to do something here. Lo and behold, he does. And when he does, you're like, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to mark that down. Rather than running off myself and getting ahead of God, I think I'm just going to be patient, pray, trust him, and wait for him to work. And when he does, I will have learned some things. That's experience. That's real experience. And that's why, quite frankly, it's just smart. It's, it's a good reason for you to follow the leadership of experienced, truly experienced men and women in matters of ministry. It's been my experience that this is one problem that exists with higher education. Higher education all too frequently is taught by professors in universities that frequently have never actually had on-the-job real experience in the field in which they teach. Have you ever noticed that? Not all the time. 
I happened to go to a smaller school where the professors actually had worked in their field. That was an advantage for me. But uh, a lot of times that's the case. You get people who are just professional students and they work their way through a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate, and then they become a professor teaching and they've never actually exercised the craft that they are teaching you in the class. And, and that's a real weakness because they don't actually have real life experience. They're just giving you theory. In the world of ministry, that's one of the reasons why we recommend anybody who desires to really learn how to be an effective minister for the Lord Jesus Christ, that they learn it right here in the context of our church. Under the leadership of experienced ministers, practitioners of the gospel who have been in the trenches and doing it. And we can teach you the theory, but speak authoritatively on the experience that God has used us to help understand. In fact, next week, if you're with us next Sunday, we're going to celebrate another graduation, and that's the graduation of the class from our ministry tools and training curriculum. So come back next week and we'll do that, but that's an important thing. So tribulation, patience, patience, experience, and experience, hope. The definition that I would give you of biblical hope is confident anticipation of a sure future event. Biblical hope is never defined like we frequently use it in everyday language. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Hope so. It is sure. It is something that is absolutely guaranteed, and you know that it's going to happen. It's just yet in the future. And so you confidently anticipate the event that you know will happen. It's just a matter of when. I don't know when, but it's going to happen. That's biblical hope. When we say, is that going to happen? I don't know. I hope so. We have a desire for it to happen. We don't really have any idea if it's going to happen or not. That's different. That's not biblical hope. So experience brings hope, right? The understanding that if we stay the course, some things will happen. Well, the ultimate hope for the Christian is blessed. The Bible calls the blessed hope, Titus 2.13 looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the rapture of the church. Our ultimate hope is the fact that Jesus Christ will do exactly what he said we will do. By the way, if you doubt that and say, well, is Jesus really going to come back and get me? Well, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> if you're growing in your faith through tribulations and patience and experience, it ultimately gives you a very confident, assured understanding that yes indeed he will come back it is yet future and no i don't know the timing but it's going to happen and that's our hope that's our blessed hope so that's how we're to live our lives in constant confident expectation that jesus will return he will rapture the church out of this world. He will judge this world. He will reward the faithful. He will set up his kingdom, and he will give us our place in it. He said he will do all those things. I read John chapter 14 and verse 1. Let me read that again and continue on. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and one of my favorite little parts of a verse of all the Bible, if it were not so, I would have told you. Before we even read on, just stop for a second and think. Jesus Christ talking to his disciples shortly before he's about to be crucified, buried, rise again, ascend to the Father, leave the Holy Spirit to be with them, there to carry on the mission. I mean, this is big stuff, y'all. 
Shortly before all that, he says, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to come back and get you. Listen, don't worry about it. He says, by the way, if there were a plan different than this plan I'm telling you, I'd have told you about it. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I'm telling you the plan because this is the way it's going to go down. If it were not so, I'd have told you. But the fact that I'm telling you confirms that this is the way it's going to happen. So he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So here's how we should live our lives. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven from whence we also, also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you live your life with that constant anticipation? Of course we don't know the timing. But we look, waiting, anticipating that it could be today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 8. Paul's near the end of his physical life and he makes this statement to young Timothy. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I mean, we just anticipate and cannot wait. We are excited for the day when the Lord will crack the sky, call our names. We catch up in the air. We meet him forever. That's the day we're waiting for. We love. We cannot wait for that day. And if there's other things on your agenda that you're like, yeah, that would be a cool day, but I really would like God to do this and this and this for me first, and then he can go ahead and come back. Well, it's really not your blessed hope then, is it? Because there may be something else that you love more than that. But there's a reward, there's a crown that is given to people who say, this is my ultimate, this is it. God, you can supersede any plans I have. Absolutely come now. And so experience brings hope. And it says hope makes not ashamed. I call that boldness. Hope makes not ashamed. We talk about not being ashamed The one theme that keeps jumping in front of us, we go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because the gospel offers hope. So when you're able to see the big picture, right? When you see this eternal life, this relationship with God in eternity, when you understand that and you believe it's going to happen, you want to tell others (laughs) You're willing to go and to risk being made fun of. You're willing to risk being rejected. You're willing to risk somebody not understanding or, or, or cutting you off or not wanting to talk to you because you know it's worth it. It makes you bold. Listen, if you share the gospel with 100 people and 99 of them reject it, those maybe don't sound like good odds. But because of the magnitude of the gift for the one that receives it, that's worth it, isn't it? If I'm the one who receives it, I'm so thankful you pursued past the other 99 and finally got to me. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Romans 10 and verse 11 says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed do you believe on him second timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 
Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And verse number 12 says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I've believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed against him unto him against that day. That's hope. I am committed, I I am persuaded, I know, I understand that he is absolutely going to do the thing that he said he's going to do. So I'm not ashamed. This section, your state in Christ, it's in flux, it's temporary. And it's a process that will cause growth if you follow the process, if you continue to learn and allow him to work through you. And when you understand that, You can rejoice in it, right? You rejoice in your standing. Of course, that's awesome. That's the big gift he gave us. You can rejoice in your state. You can rejoice in your circumstances, even if they're not good because God's using it in your life. And lastly, you can rejoice in your security. The last five verses. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It seems to me that more and more that people today are terribly insecure. And we can rejoice in the security that we have in the Lord Jesus. I want to address that on a couple of different levels. There never ceases to amaze me born-again Christian people that have self-esteem issues. They're keenly aware of their weaknesses, and frequently that drives them to some level of despair. Can I just encourage you today if that happens to you, and you don't have to tell anybody if you don't want to, but if in your heart you're thinking, that's me sometimes, can, can I encourage you, don't run to the bookstore for the latest self-help book. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Because he gives you security that nobody else possibly could. In this five verses of scripture from verse six down to verse 10, We see how Jesus died. He paid the ultimate price. He died. He gave the ultimate personal sacrifice. It says, for the ungodly. Think about it. Here we are. It's Memorial Day weekend, and rightly so. We honor the memory of soldiers who paid the ultimate price so that we can have the freedoms we enjoy in the United States of America. This is a temporal picture of the eternal reality of what Jesus did for us. Is that not right? So the soldiers, when they are willing to risk their lives for something greater, with all due respect, I I don't think that generally speaking, they're risking their lives for the individuals, me and you and everybody else as individuals. They're, They're risking their lives for the principle, for the value, for freedom, for the values of our country and the life that we We want to protect, and that's awesome, and we should honor them, and that's great. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus went further, of course. He he gave it all for us when we were his enemies. That's what it says. And he poses this idea, what if it were you, like in verse number 7? Would you give your life to rescue a righteous man? And we might define a righteous man as outwardly righteous, somebody whose behavior is clean and good. And, and, and the, the implied answer is, maybe, maybe you would. How about for a good man? A good man takes it a step further, not just outwardly righteous, but inwardly good. 
Would you potentially risk your life for a good man? Maybe. But the contrast is, yeah, yeah, but Jesus showed his love for us when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. So I I don't, you know, I don't want to be too heavy this morning, but I, I want you to consider the fact, okay, so I'm a dad, I'm a husband. Okay, if my wife or my child were at risk, I... I don't know. I, I'd like to think that I would be willing to step in and risk my life to save theirs. I would like to think that, and many of you would agree for yourselves. But if somebody I don't know breaks into my house, takes all my stuff, murders my family, burns my house down, and is escaping, and I can see him escape. I didn't get there in time. And as he's escaping, gets in a terrible car wreck, and the car's on fire and I make it to the car and see that he's still alive, am I risking my life for him? Can I be transparent enough to tell you? Not likely. And you would say, why not? And I would say, in my estimation, he's not worth it. That's what I would say. Do you know that that's kind of a picture of how much greater Jesus is than us because that man has quickly become my enemy. I'm not saving him. We were his enemies. And Christ saved us. That's how much he loves us. Do you, just, you get goose pimples thinking about that? You just feel like, wow, man, I, I never really thought about that. If, if, we, if we went back and went through all the stuff in Romans 1, 2, and 3 and talking about just how evil we are, and while that was going on, he willingly laid down his life for you? That's amazing. You know what that means? Here's a good fact. You're worthy. In his estimation, you are worthy. Jesus Christ, while you were yet his enemy, deemed you worthy of giving his life for you. A born-again Christian should not have self-esteem issues, y'all. We should not. You basically would be calling Jesus Christ a liar. He says you're worthy. Not in our own goodness. Just because he said so. That's the only reason. He died for us when we were his enemies. When we were sinners. So if you know all that, how can you possibly be insecure? You can rejoice in your security. If we continue down to verses 9 and 10, talk a little bit about eternal security. Some of the greatest verses on eternal security. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. This is eternal security of our salvation. Think about it. If the event of Christ dying brought to us this glorious standing of peace with God, how much more the fact that he conquered death and is alive will he be able to keep you forever? That's security that lasts forever, eternal security. That's what real salvation is all about. Lastly, I have a brief little chart that's in your notes. We're going to go through it really quickly, but this is important. This is good. There are three different aspects of your salvation, and they're borne out in verse number 10. It says, for if when we were enemies, notice, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You have three different tenses. You have past, present, and future. We're reconciled, being reconciled, present, shall be saved or reconciled, shall be saved, future tense. And if we just take the lines and go across horizontally, okay? So in the past, you were reconciled to Christ. When did that all take place? On Calvary. That's when it took place. Now, you got in on it when you believed, but the fact that he did what he did, he did it when he shed his blood. We're justified by his blood. That happened on Calvary. What part of you was saved when you put your faith and trust in him? That was your spirit. It was previously dead, human spirit. God gives you a new birth and gives life to your previously dead human spirit, the Holy Spirit taking up residence. Your spirit is saved at the moment of that prayer. Theologically, we talk about justification. That's what that is. And what you are saved from is the penalty of sin. Sin's penalty is eternal death and hell and punishment. And when you receive Christ as your Savior, you're saved from the penalty of that sin. The present tense, we are being reconciled. That happens every single day in our daily lives as we live our lives in the Word of God and God is continually washing through us and teaching us. And it's a continual process where our soul is in the process of continually being regenerated. We call that sanctification in theological terms. And that means that you're saved from the power of sin. You're saved from sin's power. Your carnality, your selfishness, and all the things that sin wants to do to crawl up on your back after salvation and just cause you to live a carnal, selfish, unrighteous life. You can be saved from that, even today. And in the future tense, we shall be saved. Well, when that's going to happen at the rapture of the church. That's when our body becomes glorious. And the older you get in this body, the more you look forward to that day. Theologically, we call that glorification. And we'll be saved from the very presence of sin because there's no more sinners around us anymore. The only guys making it to the other side are the ones that are saved. And God has made them all right, just as if they've never sinned. And that's going to be awesome. So who doesn't want all that? right? I mean, this is biblical salvation. This is what he has done for you, and you can have the joy of that. It's available to you if you just surrender your life to him as your personal Lord and Savior. You can rejoice in your salvation, even if things aren't going real well. And by the way, you can be joyful even if you're not happy. And I wanted to help you to understand that because we talk about being happy, okay? The high school kids are happy they're graduating. We're happy when things go our way, okay? But when things aren't going our way, we're not happy. That doesn't mean you don't have to be joyful because they're different. And so I put it down this way for you in your notes. Happiness comes from favorable circumstances while joy comes from a favorable destiny. When your circumstances are bad, you're not happy. But if your destiny is secure, you can be joyful, And you can rejoice in those things even though today I'm not doing so good. It's absolutely possible. You can experience the joy of your salvation by rejoicing in your standing, who you are permanently at peace with God. Rejoicing in your state, the temporary difficulties, but I've got the vision of the future. And rejoicing in your security your worth, your value, and your consequential eternal security. If you are not sure 
that you are the possessor of these things. Can I invite you to receive them now? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And if everybody would just, out of respect, bow their heads and close their eyes, I'd like for us to pray together. And I just want to ask a quick question, and that's this. If you're here today and you're not sure that you have this salvation applied to your life, but you would like to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, you want to get in on this, and you would just like for me to pray for you, I would just like to pray for you, and we will not embarrass you here, but I want to understand who it is I'm praying for. So if you would say, that's me, I need to be saved today, would you please pray for me, Pastor? Just raise your hand, and I just want to know if there's people like that. Anybody at all? Thank you. God bless you. You can take your hand down. Anybody else? Somebody in the back. I saw that too. And in the balcony. Thank you so much for your honesty. Over here. I thank you so much. You can put your hand down. I appreciate it. Anybody else? Just put your hand up and take it down again. I just want to know several people. God, speak into your heart and you just want to get this thing right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, we rejoice. And we thank you for the truth of your word and the great picture, the great reality of biblical salvation. Lord, I want to pray right now for these few people who honestly and sincerely before you are saying, look, I'm not sure if I have that, but I sure want it. I'm tired of my own life. I'm tired of my own sin. I'm tired of what might happen if the path that I'm on continues. Lord, I surrender it all to you. Come into my heart and into my life. Forgive me my sins. Give me the free gift of eternal life. Lord, I want to follow you because you are worthy. You demonstrated your love you died for me when i was your enemy and lord i want to receive that thank you lord jesus for doing that and i pray that each and every one of these would just in their own heart in their own way just cry out to you for that forgiveness and that eternal life for the rest of us lord i pray that we would not soon forget the greatness of our salvation and how wonderful it is to know you and that when we leave here today even if we're in the midst of tribulations we can rejoice knowing that wow, our salvation is unbelievable and we are at peace with you and even the difficulties work together for good and we are of value and so much so that you guarantee our home in eternity. Let us not be insecure anymore. Let us not be depressed anymore. Let us rejoice and have a skip in our step and excited and bold as a result to tell others who need to know. I pray that we would all be changed. And We pray in your name. Amen.